Good morning. We are, uh, I am glad you are here. It's a pleasure and an honor for me to be here. I got a text from Luke uh, this morning, actually really close to when I was leaving the house, and I didn't read it. Uh, I just saw the beginning of it, and he said he had a little bug, and uh, which seemed to coincide with the the morning kickoffs of the NFL game. But he's got a bug, so I got a bug too. But I'm here, uh, so pray for Luke. He's been traveling, and, and that's always difficult. You guys are in an awesome church, and it's uh, my privilege to uh, get to see a lot of churches. And you are in one of the great churches. Great teaching. I love to listen to, to Luke teach. He's an amazing uh, thinker and uh, a brilliant man. And I think he would say that I taught him everything he knows. I don't know that that... Should, no, I'm teasing. Luke is an amazing guy. And you guys are blessed. And uh, you will really appreciate him uh, after this morning, would be my guess. You're going to say, oh, when's Luke back? When the answer is next week. Uh, let me add one other announcement, to, uh, and it's a bit self-serving, but hopefully helpful. Uh, we are conducting uh, civic forums at the Gilbert campus, primarily interviewing the major uh, party candidates for governor. And so uh, two weeks ago, Fred Duval was there, and I had a chance to talk with him for about an hour and almost an hour and a half. Doug Ducey will be there this Tuesday. And it's very different than what you see. Elections, we feel, are very, very important. When we say all of life, all for Jesus, that, that includes the political system. And uh, so much of your everyday life is touched by these guys. So uh, it's a very different than you see. It's not a debate. It's not a back and forth. It's not a challenge. The goal is for you to walk out on uh, Tuesday night and go, I, I, I understand this candidate, and I understand the issues better. So 7 o'clock this Tuesday night at the Gilbert campus, and we'd love to, to have you there, and, and you'll feel very comfortable, hopefully, and welcome. When Josh was reading that, how many of you were here last week? Okay. And, and if you've been here for the majority, this is driving me nuts. I know, it's the little things in life. Let's put him on the drums and see if it bothers him any. Huh? They don't care about me, I don't care about them. Uh, if you've been here for a couple of weeks, your reaction could have been, as you were reading that, here we go again. This is amazingly repetitive. And most of us don't like repetition. Do I need to go over this again? Yes. Evidently, you didn't hear it. Pick up your room. I heard you. Well, evidently not. You didn't do it. This goes on and on and on. You give that, that kid the keys and you is he going, be, drive careful. Well, I heard you. Well, Paul comes again with something that's extraordinarily repetitious. I think you understand that in the original text, these chapter breaks and verse breaks weren't here. There's kind of a reaction that when we hit chapter 15, we're going, well, here's something new. But chapter 15, the beginning of it, sounds very much like the end of chapter 14. 
Uh, let's see how far back, how far do we want to go? Well, let's just say verse 21 of chapter 14. It's not good to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he eats is not a faith, and whatever is not a faith is sin. And, and Paul essentially continues this same thought in uh, chapter 15 and in verses 1 and 2. The division is there, but the thought continues. It's a familiar point. Ray Steadman writes this. We are into the 15th chapter of the Epistle of Romans, and Paul is concluding his discussion, so you get there the idea of the continuance, on the different views on what's right and what's wrong for Christians. Is it morally right for a Christian to drink wine, beer, booze? I said booze, he said cocktail. Or is that wrong? Is it morally wrong for a Christian to keep special days? To, to uh, such as Lent or others? Is it morally wrong for a believer to smoke, or is it right? Is it morally wrong to eat pork, or, or what is wrong? These are questions that Christians have asked through the years. You could go on and on, for there's an extensive list. What we're dealing with, and this is really important now, are issues of preference. Paul is not saying, here's something who's wrong. You have somebody who says it's right. Now, you condone that. You tolerate that. He's saying, here are these issues. And, and as Stedman says, and as you know, we've been arguing, debating, discussion issues like this forever. I was a Christian a nanosecond before the discussion began, is it all right to go to an R-rated movie? And there were a whole group of people that were hardcore, no R-rated movies. And then came out The Passion of the Christ, and it was rated R. And these same churches that said, no, 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 were selling block tickets and renting theaters for you to go see it. You have to be really careful in all of these things. And here's what Paul's saying is, you've got these issues. I've been at uh, Gilbert, I think the last three weeks or four, and, and I find myself, and this is where you maybe have been, if not, it's where you're going to be in a minute, where I'm going, okay, give me some answers. Tell me what's right or tell me what's wrong. And, and they really didn't, and I'm not going to give it to you either. He uses language, you see it in verse 1, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. So, so immediately we get into a discussion of what's strong, what's mature, and inevitably you want to get to this, who's right, who's wrong. He said those who are strong ought, it's the basic idea of owing a debt or an obligation, ought to bear the weaknesses, literally to pick up or to carry. Those who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of believers is not simply tolerate them, but, but not to be critical or condescending, to show respect. This is a very difficult way to live. 
John Piper writes, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. You see that as a key phrase in verse 1? Is this not, is not about pleasing ourselves. In, in these discussions, since they're not a right or wrong issue, we need to live in, here. this is unity. We live in a world that's filled with debate. It doesn't matter what the topic is. Turn on a sports show, and there's one guy yelling about this and another guy yelling about that. Turn on a political show, and, and it gets to the point where you got four people talking at once. We're down to cooking shows where they're debating about the right way to cook. Now we come to these issues, and we have to live with an enormous amount of tension. And, and there is no ultimate solution to this in the sense of resolve. Paul seems to be saying, this is with you, it has been with you, it's going to be with you, and your aim is to build the other person up, not tear him down. Chapter 12, verse 18 Paul says, as far as it depends upon you, if it's possible, live at peace with one another. Chapter 14, verse 19, we are to pursue things which make for peace, to build up. The last part of what Josh read in verse 6 and 7, to be of one accord, one voice, accept one another. Live in unity. That's the ultimate aim. We can't wipe away these differences. Now, now make sure, because I, I, I know this can easily be misunderstood. So let me be repetitious. We're not talking about moral issues. We at Redemption Church, all eight campuses, have taken the stand that adultery is wrong. We're not, it's not open for debate. We're not saying, come in, and the guy says, well, I'm just a little boy that can't say no. Well, we'll help you say no. We'll chain you to your car. We'll do whatever it is. I don't know. But, but you see what I mean? We're not talking about this issue. We're talking about real-life issues that you flesh out every day. Not, not issues that are mandated in Scripture, but issues that are optional, preferential. And, and the church for years has fought and divided over this. Here you go. We've got one this way. Please, by the way, you don't need to send all your emails or criticisms to Luke. He's the guy that invited me in. Don't email me. Okay? I'll give you one this week. Halloween. Every year at church, I don't know about this, every year at church, I would get a call, what's your stand on Halloween? And I began by saying, I'm a baby Ruth Butterfingers kind of a guy. That's my stand. And, and that's flip. And it wasn't an issue to me. And I would say, we, we trick-or-treated every year and never sacrificed a baby at the end of it. What's the big deal? And then I met a friend who I love dearly for whom Halloween was a big deal. 
He came from a background where this conjured up, a pagan background he was involved in, which conjured up all sorts of wrong things and satanic things. And he said, Tom, I know exactly what you're saying, but I got to tell you, this is a tough deal for me. Okay? We get this stuff all the time. That's the issue we're talking about. What do we do in that? And there's this sense in which I'm saying, okay, in, in this moment, I can't wipe away these differences. I don't want to play, pretend that they don't exist, but here's how I resolve them in verse 3 and 4. With Christ as the example and Scripture as our guide. That we acknowledge there's these differences, but we coexist with them. You've got them all around you, right? Right? Sort of right. You don't respond out here. I guess every campus is different. Right? I mean, you have them, right? So fill in the blank. I don't know what this issue is. And you're sitting here, and you got a buddy over here, and you're in a redemption group together, and you guys just flat disagree on this. Your decision is which wine is the best. His decision is, I can't believe you drink this at all. What do you do in those moments? Well, here's what Paul's saying, is you're yielding to one another. You can't violate your conscience, but you can't drive him or her to violate their conscience. And your example, and I want to take it and just kick the slats out of it and make it bigger and bigger and bigger. Your example, and this is Christ. Verse 3, for even Christ didn't please himself. And then he, he quotes, and he quotes from, uh, from the Old Testament, from Psalm 69, a messianic psalm. The reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in the earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. Through perseverance, it's the idea of faithful obedience. Encouragement, we'll have hope. I sent over one sentence. Can you put it up on the screen? Okay, here you go, guys. This, those of you who take notes, I'm always fascinated what you do with them. I don't know, but, but you ought to take this as a note. Let it be your screensaver. Let it be something that you come back to again and again and again. When we hear this word hope, our hope is anchored in the character of God, the promises of God, the sovereignty of God, and the faithfulness of God. Our hope is not in the Republicans or the Democrats or the Libertarians or the Independents. Uh, our hope is not in any human institution. Our fundamental problem is not an educational problem. It's not an economic problem. Our fundamental problem is a spiritual problem. And our hope, now when we talk about hope, let's make sure we understand it, not using it as we do in the typical sense. You, you might say, hey, I hope, here you go, this would be me. I hope the Hawkeyes win this week. Here's what I mean. We did. We had a buy. Okay. But, but here's what I mean. I hope that we do. We likely won't. We might. But I hope that we do. 
It's something uncertain in the future. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about something that's rock solid. Your rock solid is in the character, promises, sovereignty, faithfulness of God. It's in his character, who he is. It's the promise. Here's what he promises you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And he's sovereign, which means he has control over the whole universe. No maverick molecule loose anywhere in the universe that can usurp his plan. And he's faithful. Okay? He who began a good work will continue it till the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. The end of Romans. What can separate us from the love of God? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Not our love for him, but his love for us. And he lists all these things. And he said, hide death, nor any other created thing. That's anything other than God himself. Everything else is created. Nothing can separate us from God. He began that good work. Your future, your hope, your perseverance, your encouragement is in God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, here's the problem. We live in a selfish world and we're selfish people. We come to Christ in repentance and faith and we're maybe less selfish, certainly more forgiven, but into every human relationship whether it's marriage, work, church, we bring our desire for our stuff. Okay? That's who we are by nature. Paul says in Philippians 2, by nature we're children of wrath. Now, if you're wondering what that means, go look right now in the two-year-old room. Okay, and have a kid that's over in the corner. He's not bothering anybody. He's sitting there with a toy, but his presence sitting there with that toy offends every other two-year-old, and pretty soon the two-year-old comes over, and the two-year-old says what? Ma, yeah. You didn't need coaching on that one. You got that one, right? Mine, mine, no mine, no mine, no mine. I, I used to travel a lot, and... Uh, I would come home. I'd almost always get something for the girls. I have two daughters. And usually what I'd get is a T-shirt. It's not very creative, but they were always around. And I'd come in, and inevitably one of them would be down in, in the bedroom, and I'd be unpacking, and let's say it's uh, Haley. I'd say, hey, hey, here's what I got you. And the minute Sarah saw that, she said, what about me? What about me? And, and, and here's what I observed. It wasn't a Haley thing. If Sarah was there first and I gave it to her, Haley would come in and say, what about me? Now what I need and you need to understand is I bring into all of life, including the church, what about me? Isn't that right? Some of you are here because when you came into this church, you said, what about me? And you said, this place, what? Meets by needs. And that's good. But what happens when your needs change? Well, that's the end of that relationship. 
You're in a marriage. And, and this simply won't work. No human relationship will work with this, what about me? So, so I'm going to take you to two. I have uh, exactly right now 20 minutes. Okay? I'm going to take you to two human relationships, that are qualities that are absolutely essential. Love and humility. So when we talk about love, that can get sidetracked. I went online, which is always dangerous, and did a search, just the word love. I had 17,215,250 entries. And these were just quotes that people sent in about love. When it rains, look for a rainbow. All right. <laughs> to see unconditional love, look in the eyes of a child. What do your parents think of that one? <laughs> love, <laughs> here you go. This, love is like a rose. The special ones grow in the winter. <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what it means. Uh, Love is like a rhinoceros. It's short and hasty. If it cannot find its way, it makes a way. I don't know. Here you go. For a while, I thought I would never love or hate anyone, but now I've come to realize I've loved and hated the same person. That makes for a good lawsuit and criminal reaction. Well, that's love. What's love from the biblical sense? You know it. Turn with me. You know where we're going, right? 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is the biblical definition of love, beginning in verse 4. Okay. Now, you, you may be sitting here, you may be a stickler, and you may be one of those that are saying, boy, if Luke was here, he'd be going word by word through this whole thing. Well, good news, Luke's coming back next week. But I, I, I think we've already touched on this. My question is not the, the, so much the science of this, it's the art of this, it's how do I do it? How do I do that? How do I do it when I'm sitting in a room, having a cup of coffee, talking to somebody, and we disagree? What's to be my attitude? Well, he told you, he, Paul, told you that you have the attitude in you that's in Christ Jesus. We'll look specifically at that passage in a minute, but let's work our way through this. Love is, and then he lists, I think, 15 characteristics. So how do you get through this? How do you love? When you, when you look into her eyes and say, I love you, what are you saying? I, I like you a lot to the point that I'll endure an awful lot of stuff, but you need to know I have limits here. <laughs> Most of us mean this. I love you if. I love you when. Here's what Paul says love is. First, love is patient. It's active. It's a word that's used in the Greek in the New Testament that describes patience with people. They have specific words. It's not just circumstances. It's people. 
It's long-suffering, long-tempered. Love is patient with people who test your patience. Love is kind. It means to be useful, serving, gracious. Its primary concern is the welfare of others. It's more willing. Here you go. Here you go. Here's a note taker. It's more willing to be taken advantage of than to take advantage of. More willing for you to take advantage of me than me to take advantage of you. Love doesn't tolerate. It's patient. Sandy and I have been married uh, 29 months. Okay? And shortly after we were married, I got sick. Still sick. Don't look it. <laughs> but still sick. Okay? I got this thing, lupus. Primarily a disease that strikes women 18 to 35, 90% of it. So I said, I can't wait for my first support group. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> so I had that, and then in January, I had open heart surgery. Okay, I'm not saying this so you go, aw, but it would be a good time to go, aw. <laughs> so two weeks into it, I'm out flat. I'm in bed. I'm sleeping 20 hours a day. And people said, wow, Sandy didn't sign up for this. And I said, yes, she did. I was there. Here's what she said. Maybe you said this too. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, till death do you part. Now, she didn't think it was going to come in two weeks. Okay? But, but here's what she's put in an extraordinarily difficult position. When I came home from the hospital in January, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't get out of the car. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't take a shower. She had to wash me, clean me. Love is patient, long-suffering. Love says, yeah, I did sign up for this. I've done a, a a lot of weddings. And every time in the counseling and the wedding, the hard part is the bride and groom being married think they're the exception. For better or worse, we're never going to have worse. We're never going to be. Have you ever she's so cute when she laughs? And about the third year, her laugh's like fingers in a chalkboard. Okay? It's not so cute after a while. Sickness and in health, we'll never be sick. Every couple that's getting ready to be married should watch The Notebook. That's your future. This is where you're headed. And in those moments, when you're thrust in the position that Sandy was in, love is patient, long-suffering. Not doing something out of duty, but doing it out of compassion. Love is kind. It it means to be service. It's the counterpart of of patient. I'll tell you, by the way, the first test of this, I think, is at home. Lots of guys I know are kinder to a server in a restaurant than they are to their wife in the house. 
Lots of families I see seem to operate under jungle rules to me. Grabbing for food. You drop food in the middle of it and all the rules are off. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Jealous is to have a strong desire. There's two sides to jealousy. We're really going to expose your heart here because it's going to be every one of you. Jealousy is typically associated with the idea of, I want what you have. But let me give you the other side of jealousy. Is, I just wish you didn't have it. I don't even want it. I see you with something that you seem to value, and all of a sudden, I don't want you to have it. Not because I want it. I just don't want you to have that sense of satisfaction. Love doesn't brag. It's the only time the word's used in the New Testament. It's the other side of jealousy. It's my attempt to make you jealous. It's me to puff my resume to impress you. This is one of those things we hate in other people. But we can't see it in ourselves. My kid, my kid, and I, gosh... I, this is one of those things I shouldn't say, but, but, and, and then at that point, I've always said to a speaker, then don't say it, but to violate my own rule for a second. My kid's an honor student at whatever. Okay, what's the point of that? Some of you need to go right now and scrape your bumper sticker before <laughs> church gets out. But what's the point of that? If you're proud of the kid, take him to Dairy Queen and get him a blizzard and say, I'm proud of you. My kids, I never see one that say, my kid's an average student. <laughs> Where they have to be, by definition, most of you should have that bumper sticker. But I brag. Why? I want you to be jealous of me. Why? Because we're sick, sinful people. Love is not arrogant, overbearing, haughty, looking down at others. Napoleon is quoted as saying, I'm not a man like any other. Love does not act unbecomingly, poor manners, rude. I'm at the bookstore the other day, standing there. This happens every time I go. I'm looking at books. Standing there looking at books. And somebody will walk down the aisle and walk right between me and the books. You can't, I mean, I want to go. Am I invisible or what is the deal here? I mean, it, the, the most common thing, the loving thing to do is to say, excuse me. Maybe really loving, if you're not trying to get at the aisle, is to inconvenience yourself so much that you walk around that aisle to the other. Love is not rude. It doesn't act gracelessly. Here's the key. If you're marking in your Bible, here's the centerpiece of this whole thing. Verse 5, love does not seek its own. It's not stubborn and inflexible and says, you adjust to me. I mentioned Larry right before. Larry wrote poetry. And I love Larry's poetry because it, I could understand it. I read some poetry now. I just, just don't get it. That's my problem, not the poet's problem, I guess. But here's one of Larry's poems. 
It's called When Things Are Going My Way. How easy it is to be loving, to be kind, tender-hearted each day. I'm so wonderfully easy to live with when things are going my way. When things are going my way, I'm as sweet as sweetness can be. I can't understand as hard as I try why others aren't caring like me. Be careful that you don't upset me. Don't cross me or cause me dismay. Or I won't love you the way that I do when things are going my way. Now, I get that poetry. Love, here's the key, love doesn't seek its own. In every discussion, an incident with Sandy, it's not me seeing what can I get out of it. It's not me loving her and seeing her as an object that's there to make me happy. And whether it's my kids or at work or with a customer or a neighbor or whatever it is, the key is to say, listen, this is not about me. Okay, we talked, we went early, right? To the second girl, the two-year-olds, to the kids in the t-shirt, and you spotted it. Yet your whole life is looking at every circumstance. What about me? There's a sense in what ought to be the two of you at the door saying, you go first, no, you go first, no, you go first. And we're backed all the way in the lobby because nobody can figure out who's coming in first. You see what I'm saying there? This is the key. This is love. This is all these things that Paul's been talking about. This is living at peace with one another. It's Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. In in a world we live in, where we're desperately seeking our rights, Jesus comes along, and his example is, hey, not my rights, not my will, but the Father's will be done. Love is not provoked. That means it's aroused or easy to anger. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It's a a bookkeeping term that calculates or reckons or figures or keeps a ledger. Love doesn't keep score. So there's the man who says, when my wife and I fight, she doesn't get hysterical, she gets historical. Remember back in 1985? Remember the day? It was a fall day. You had on that green sweater, which I've always hated, and those khaki slacks and Do you remember that? Love doesn't keep score. Love is not saying, I'll do this, and we're going to keep score, and then we're going to balance that out at the end. So I've sat with couples, and they're arguing and fighting, and all of a sudden, one of them will have a breakthrough and say, all right, I see what I'm supposed to do. And then here's the next question. How long do I need to do it? What if he doesn't respond? It doesn't say, what if he doesn't respond? Love's not keeping score. Stay with the definition. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It's not taking satisfaction in sin. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and lightness for darkness. It's not necessarily going and participating in evil. It's laughing at what God calls evil. 
So the antidote is that, and now we're at the bottom of verse 6. It rejoices in truth. It loves the proclamation of the truth. It loves to hear what God has to say and is true. Okay? Now, if I were to take, I've got uh, four minutes. If I were to take all this and bundle this together, how do we survive in these relationships where I'm yielding? 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, verse 7 tells us this. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How does a relationship with one another work? Well, it, love bears all things. Bears means li- literally to cover, to support, to protect. To protect others from exposure and ridicule and harm. Love doesn't gossip or listen to gossip. Even when sin is certain, love tries to correct it with the least possible hurt and harm to the guilty person. Love never protects sin, but it's anxious to protect the sinner. Imagine a relationship like this. Uh, wait a minute. What do you, there you go. When somebody starts the sentence, I probably shouldn't tell you about this. Your answer should be, stop. Josh told me something, and and I told him I wouldn't tell anybody, but I'm telling you what, when that happens, you got to say stop, two things, stop, and then make a list, because you don't want to tell much to that person. It bears all things. Love believes all things. Love is not cynical, suspicious. When it throws its mantle over a wrong, it always believes in the best outcome for the one who's done the wrong. Love always believes that there's another way. Love hopes all things. Even when belief in the loved one's goodness or repentance is shattered, love still hopes. When it runs out of faith, it holds on to hope. As long as God's grace is operative and human failure is never fatal. I remember what I said when Josh was asking about the Bible study, and I said no one invited me. I went back a couple months later, and I said, here you go, this is a great lesson. I said to the guys, why didn't you invite me to that Bible study? And they said, it never occurred to us that God would save somebody like you. Really? See, love says nobody's outside God's gracious grasp. A few years ago, I was at Cannon Beach up in the ocean teaching, and there was a, guy, a kid walking down the street. He said, I'm the wretch the song's about. That's who you are. That's the people around you. God does this amazing things. He saves you. <laughs> this just popped into my head, so it's dangerous. He saves people like you. That's the whole point. Here's the last thing. Love endures all things. It's a military term to endure. It's used of an army holding a vital position at all costs. Every hardship, every suffering is endured in order to hold fast. It endures all things at all costs. It stands against overwhelming opposition. So here's the summary sentence. 
Love bears whatever otherwise is unbearable. It believes what is otherwise unbelievable. It hopes in what otherwise is hopeless. It endures when anything less than love would give up. After love bears, it believes. After it believes, it hopes. After it hopes, it endures. There's no after endurance, for endurance is the unending climax of love. You are strong. Do what's best for those who are weak. It's not about you. To me, this is the summation of what Paul's been saying since chapter 12. Okay? Now, there's probably some incompleteness there, but I want you to see what he's saying. He's saying this is not X's and O's and getting your way. There are things that you're never going to resolve. So what do you do? You love the other person. You yield to them. You want an example? It's like Christ. It's Philippians 2.5. Have the attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Although Zoe existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant. Paul's given us instruction here on how to live as a church. And what he's saying is, your main concern is not you. Your main concern is Christ and his glory. And Christ is glorified when we're unified. Let me pray as the guys come back. Josh comes back. Father, thanks for this amazing truth. We are selfish by nature and children of wrath. And, and our desire is to, is to have and to want all of our own stuff. God, change our heart and change our mind. Let us be concerned about your way, about what's truly right. God, in these areas of preference, let us yield to one another. We pray to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.